Good morning, Southbridge. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to have a, a great morning together. We're going to continue in our series uh, called Red Letters. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 today. And uh, before we get to that, I want to give a little disclaimer. Uh, specifically, if you have little ones with you, please listen to me. Uh, because of the nature of this passage today, there's going to be some sexual content. If I were rating the sermon this morning, it's not going to be crass, but it'll be probably PG-13 in the content. So if you have a little one uh, that's in the service, I know sometimes people like to do that, or if you're in the video venue, you may want to be aware of this. Uh, now would be a great opportunity for you to head over to use our Bridge Kids Ministry, zero through fifth grade. If they don't want to go in there today, there is a TV out in the lobby. Um, you might want to take advantage of that opportunity. And then for other folks, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you may want to get up too to make other people feel comfortable and being able to get their kids out of here. Uh, for those who want to do that, we got Bible over on that table. Uh, we give them away. If we run out of Bibles over on that table, there's some out at the guest services kiosk. We give those away every week too. And Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be continuing in this series um, called Red Letters. And then we're going to be baptizing people after the service today too. So there's another announcement. For those of you who are guests, like Pastor Brad said, now is a great opportunity for you to fill out your connection card. We just want you to know uh, that we love you. We've got a gift for you out at the first time guest kiosk today before you leave, but you've got to fill that card out and turn it in um, in order to be able to claim those gifts. Starbucks gift card, we make a donation to a, a ministry as well um, because you turn that card in. So if you do that for us, that'd be great. And before we get to the series, I just want to take a moment um, today and pause and uh, we oftentimes rejoice with those who rejoice. We rejoice here at Southbridge all the time. We're going to be doing baptisms after the service, like I said. We get people that trust Christ, and we talk about, tell those stories, and we rejoice in those moments. But the Bible also says to mourn with those who mourn. And uh, this week at Southbridge, uh, we suffered a great loss. One of our elders, Danny Lotz, uh, passed away, went to be with Jesus. It's awesome for him, and it uh, really stinks for us to be as candid as I can be. I sent a letter to our church and told a couple stories uh, about my relationship with Danny and uh, how much we're going to miss him, but I want to just take a moment and acknowledge him, what he's meant to our church. Um, he, uh, he was key and crucial in this church getting started and getting planted, and uh, many of you maybe know him as the gentle giant at the door that was handing out bulletins. Some of you, uh, he played a role as an elder in your life. Uh, some of you as a Bible study leader. Some of you as a friend. I know, and you're here as your husband and, and Jonathan being here. These are dad. Um, some of you as a mentor and uh, lots of different things. Uh, but to our church as a whole, I, I was talking to Ann the other day about it and uh, the legacy that he left here. I remember when Danny and I first met and uh, he was just going to be a friend that was going to show me around town. I was told there's no chance he was going to go to our church. And so I didn't have any thoughts about um, trying to convince him or sell him in the idea of being a part of our church. And I remember we sat down and we started talking and he asked me what I thought I'd wear. And I said, I'd probably wear whatever I feel like wearing that morning. I probably at that moment would have never guessed seersucker pants. I hadn't been in the South long enough, I guess, at that point. Um, but... Uh, he, he would have preferred that I wear a tie every Sunday. In fact, on Sundays when I did wear a tie, he'd joke with me and say, hey, you look like a real pastor today, Scott. I think he was joking. And uh, we'd talk through some of that stuff. We'd talk about music, and his preference would have been an organ and a choir on stage. And he asked if we were going to have drums when we were hanging out together that first time. And we didn't have a drummer, but uh, we didn't have any people. So I didn't know, but I thought, yeah, we'll probably have drums. And so I'm telling him all this stuff. And uh, he didn't like that. Um, but when we talked about the vision of our church, which is to connect people to Jesus for life change, he got excited about that and could put away you know, any of the preferential stuff and the minor stuff and focus on the major stuff. He believes, like I believe, if you lift Jesus up and preach the word, that men and women and children will be drawn to him and that God will transform lives. And so we make a big deal about that. And he was the very first person to buy into our church's vision. And so let me tell you what that means. He, before he ever heard me preach a sermon, before he ever even gathered any people, um, he believed and a vision to see people connected to Jesus for life change. And being the first person, that means that every person that comes after him 
whether you believe in the vision and you know you give your finances or you give your talents or you're sharing the gospel as a member of our church and that you're standing on the, the shoulders of Danny Lotz. And uh, we don't want to worship people, but those who deserve honor um, should be honored. And so I just want to honor him this morning and say he's a significant, significant part of our church. And for those of you who don't know him, the few of you here that maybe don't even know who he is, um, he's had an impact in your life um, because this church being here as a result of some of his buying into the vision and the things that he's done and done a lot of other stuff too. And you can read that letter I wrote, but um, talks about a couple of other stories. But I just wanted to pray a prayer of thankfulness uh, for Danny this morning. And then we'll jump into the word, which is I know he wouldn't want me to say any of this stuff and he'd be embarrassed and he just wants to get into the word and uh, we will do that. But I'm going to pray first. And so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for the gift of Danny Lotz and the godly men. Uh, that you've given us godly men in our church that we can aspire to be like. And I think about Danny, and he was a man's man, but also demonstrated kindness and gentleness and joy and love, the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, I pray that you would raise up more men to be like him in our community, in our church, in the city, in this world. And I thank you for his life, and I thank you for the legacy that he leaves. And it was a, a legacy of loving your son Jesus for over 70 years. And I pray that some of us would have that same, uh, same legacy, men and women. And uh, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity to open your word today, and I pray that you would just accomplish the vision that Danny and I talked about on the day one of seeing people changed. I pray you change people today. I pray you change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We'll get into the word this morning. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27, so if you have a copy of the scripture, please turn there. Um, what we've been doing in this series, for those of you who are joining us maybe for the first time today, we're glad that you're here, but really what we've done is we've taken the Great Commission, which is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and used it as a launch pad into the back end of the, uh, the rest of the Gospels. And so in, in the fall, we're going to do a series where we focus in on, not just do a surface level, but really go phrase by phrase through those two verses, at least for four weeks, called Commission, and you're invited to be a part of that. But the Great Commission truly is a great commission. It's Jesus starts off, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what he's about to say is pretty significant. He says to go, make disciples. And we say that a lot of different ways in churches, you know, fully committed followers of Jesus, lives that are transformed. At Southbridge, we say connecting people to Jesus for life change. We're talking about making disciples. And then how do we do that? Well, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. We're doing baptisms today. And we're going to play a video at the end of people that we know they're going to be baptized. There are some of you that maybe want to be baptized and you haven't been. If you're ready to be baptized, we will baptize you today. Um, just go out underneath the tent after the service. Talk to a pastor. Several folks have Raised to Life t-shirts on, Southbridge t-shirts. Talk to them and they're going to ask you these questions. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And why do you want to be baptized? And so those are the questions they're going to ask you. If you want to be baptized, we'd love to baptize you. And then it says the next phrase, teaching, and this is where we've really focused in on this series, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So it's not just to know these things, but to actually teach other people to obey them. And so in order to be able to obey them, we at least have to know them. There are over 300 commands in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This summer, we've been focusing in on those commands that we've been called to obey and to teach others to obey. We obviously can't cover them all. But hopefully as we get into the scriptures and you see some of these, it'll kind of whet your palate. It'll kind of give you a desire to get into the word more and to study more of these. And today we're going to look at a command that calls for a radical response. Because of our extreme conditions. And so radical response to sin because of the extreme conditions we live in in these days, these last days that we're living in. 
And you think about extreme conditions and radical responses that, that people have. And I don't know about you, but I enjoy uh, watching movies or reading books or stories about people that are in survival situations. And oftentimes they're in tense moments, you know, lost at sea or they're trapped somewhere, the, you know, miners or there's somebody that's in some situation that they have to be incredibly creative in how they're going to drink and how they're going to eat and what they're going to do. And they show ingenuity. And the reason why is because I ask myself, what would I do? Other than probably die in that moment. But if you think about, I don't know if you've read any of these. Maybe it just shows that I'm weird, that I like these. It's just one of many reasons why I'm weird. But the, I, I'll read these stories. I read one this week about the Robertsons. The family is called the Robertsons, not Duck Dynasty. Robertsons, for those of you who are in, oh, they all have big beards. No, no there were five people, though. Robertson family, they decided they were going to sail around the world, which was going pretty well for about 17 months. They had crossed the Atlantic. And then they ran into, and this doesn't sound like a real story. You can check it out. Google it yourself. Uh, they came into contact with a pod of killer whales. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, I'm telling you, this is what happened. The pot of killer whales hit the ship, ended up cracking the hull of the ship, and it sunk within minutes. The 18-year-old son described it as, he said, if you would, could imagine what it would be like to be out in the forest and have a big tree snap in two. That's what it sounded like, the wood splitting. And the 18-year-old son said, I looked back, I saw three killer whales, and I thought, that's how I'm going to die? I'm going to be eaten alive? Killer whales don't actually eat people, for those of you who know that, but as an 18-year-old, you don't know that. And what ended up happening is they pulled their inflatable out, popped that up, and they had a nine-foot dinghy. And there were actually six people because they had picked up a hitchhiker. So there was a, a father, a mother, three kids, and a hitchhiker. They hopped into the inflatable and into the dinghy with six days' worth of food. On the 17th day that they were floating around in the ocean, their inflatable went down. So everybody had to get into the dinghy. The dinghy was partially submerged. There was only one dry spot on it. And so they would take turns who would get to sit there. And some people were waist-deep in water. What would you do? to survive. They tell the story of what they did. The main thing that they caught to eat, they ended up being at sea for 38 days, by the way, 30 over a month, 38 days are out there. They took an oar from their dinghy boat and created a spear. And the main thing they ate were turtles. So sorry if you're a turtle lover, uh, but they ate these turtles. They drank the turtles blood. <laughs> that sounds terrible. And if you want to know how come the turtles blood wasn't poisonous, you'll have to read the story because I don't want to explain all that. And it's not very pretty. But then they took the meat and they let that dry out. They killed a five-foot shark uh, while they were there. So score one for the humans against the sharks. They took the turtle oil. They rubbed it on their skin uh, to try and survive. After 38 days, they were found by a fishing boat. What would you do to survive in those extreme circumstances? There's another story that's very famous. They made a movie about it. Um, it was about an uh, Uruguayan rugby team that went down in the Andy Mountains. And maybe you've heard this story before. They crashed. There were 45 people on the plane. Most of them were that rugby team. Only 16 of them survived. For the first 10 days, the way that they found food, where they were in this, this frozen tundra of the Andy Mountains, uh, was they dug through luggage. And one guy told a story about how he took three days to eat a peanut that was a chocolate-covered peanut, nibbled on it, nibbled through the peanut a little bit. And the reason why the story is famous, because this happened years ago, is because the people had to decide whether they would eat the other bodies from the people who died upon they died at impact. What would you do? The people who survived did. And they don't introduce that so we can have an ethical conversation about those things. I believe those bodies are created in the image of God. I'm not saying we should do that, but what would you do? Extreme circumstances, people show they'll do extreme things. My favorite survival story I've ever read is uh, Aaron Ralston. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, became real popular around 2003, 2005 time range. He was even on uh, Oprah and some of the daily TV shows. And what happened for him was he was an adventurer, a climber, hiker, and very skilled. But he made a mistake. He didn't tell anyone where he was going. And he went out on his own on a hike. Ended up down in a canyon in Utah that was 100 feet deep. About 100 feet down into this canyon. About 3 feet wide. 
uh, what happened was an 800-pound boulder shifted, fell on his right arm, and he got trapped. Oftentimes people tell the story, well, he cut his arm off and got out. No, he spent six days down there, if you read the whole story. And he knew on the first day that cutting his arm off was an option. But obviously he wanted to pursue other options, like screaming, and that didn't work. Trying to move the boulder, that didn't work. Come up with pulley system, came up with all kinds of stuff. You can read about what he did. On the third day, he took his pocket knife, he tried to cut his arm off and wasn't able to because he couldn't cut through the bone. Then on the sixth day, he thought he was going to die. And you read the things he did to drink and to eat in that situation. And he was videotaping his last words to his family. And then it came, he said, I don't know why I didn't think about it sooner, but it came across his mind that he said, I can break my arm and try and get out of here. And so he leveraged himself and broke his forearm, which I can't imagine what that sounded like or felt like. And then he said, major problem, he forgot there are two bones in your forearm. Can you imagine? And then he breaks the second bone and gets up, climbs out of there somehow. Gets, his car was seven miles away. Uh, the paved roads were 30 miles away. Ends up finding a family on the way out of there and uh, survives. We've proven as humans in extreme circumstances to physically survive. We will do extreme things. But what's ironic, better word might be tragic, is that with greater circumstances and with a higher cost, we will be extremely casual. When we're talking about eternity and we're dealing with a battle with sin, we are extremely casual. But what we wouldn't do to survive physically, which takes us to our text today. In Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus is calling us to and the command that's here today is a radical response to sin. The Aaron Ralston story is actually very appropriate when you read what Jesus actually calls us to do when dealing with our sin. He focuses in on sexual sin here, but the principles actually apply to any sin. So if your sin is food, if your sin is self, if your sin is shopping, like all those things you can apply, you can overlay this on here. And what's happening, just to give you context, I always want to give you the context, as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount the last several weeks. It's Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is preaching this sermon, and then we're in this section where he's done these six statements. You've heard it said, not you've read that it was written, not that you've seen it, but you've heard it said by the false religious teachers, the self-righteous religious teachers, that give a misinterpretation of the original intention of these passages. You've heard it said last week, or the last passage was, do not murder or you'll be judged. And he says, don't even be angry. That's the intention behind the original commandment. Jesus isn't up on the bar. He's not changing the Old Testament. He's showing you God's heart from the beginning. And here in our passage today, he's talking about adultery and then lust. In the last commandment, he was talking about the sanctity of life. And this one, the reason why this adultery commandment was originally given was the sanctity of marriage. And I thought to myself, as I was preparing this week, this sermon was preached by Jesus a couple thousand years ago. How relevant was it then? Because it'd be even more relevant today. Think about what you've seen in the news just this past week. Whether it's uh, you know the Ashley Madison, the website that um, helps people cheat on their spouse. Uh, they got hacked into and uh, 37 million people now being exposed by the hackers until they get their demands met on money. Um, be sure your sins will find you out comes to mind in that. But sex. Um, you think about the, the uh, situation with the guy from Subway, Jared Subway, who's been accused of child pornography, sex, I mean, all attacks on the sanctity of marriage. We debate about who can get married and what's the Supreme Court saying in some weeks. That wasn't this week, but it's all the time. Um, we talk about the sanctity of life, Planned Parenthood videos being released, and, and maybe you not as an individual, but we as a culture do not have sanctity of life. We will legislate murder. And so what Jesus preaches here in the sermon that I'll comment on today 
is probably more relevant today even than it was then. Look at what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, the guy who has all authority in heaven and earth says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Why would we do that? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better for a short-term temporary sacrifice than for a long... Think about the cost. Think about the situation we're talking about in verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we have lots of reasons why we explain away that, that he doesn't really mean that in hell and I'll come, but what if he did? These are extreme circumstances. And you think about the day and age that we live in and I think about where Jesus preached this message to this audience. And, and when Jesus preached this message to this audience, ancient Near Eastern uh, folks generally believed that adultery was the great sin. Like that was, that's the bad one. We do not live in those days any longer. If you didn't know, most people, most Americans do believe that it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. However, that's the only way they define adultery, which scripture would talk about any sex outside of marriage as adultery. So anybody that you're sleeping with that you're not married to, that's somebody else's wife, it's not your wife, it's not your husband, you're sleeping, that is adultery. And uh, most Americans don't think that's true. In fact, research shows that 29% of Americans, 29%, think that premarital sex is not a sin. 36% don't even think it's a moral issue to be discussed. So let me rephrase that. 65% of Americans will profess that adultery is not even a sin. That's the time that we live in now. And think about when Jesus lived and he's confronting this audience and he's calling for this radical response. If your eye causes you to sing, gouge it off. If your hand causes you to sing, cut it off. Because what we're talking about, the stakes are so high. Extreme circumstances that we're in today. What would he say to us today? Would he up it? No doubt he would at least call us to what he says here in this passage. This is a radical response to sin. And that's our main and only point today. That sin requires a radical response. Not just sexual sin, but certainly sexual sin. Because you think about where we live now. There's nothing new under the sun. People have always been wicked, always been perverse, there's always been twisted. People are sacrificing babies in the Bible. Sexual perversion, prostitution, all this stuff's happening in the Bible. But there are things that are happening. They didn't have iPhones in the Bible. Newsflash, a couple people maybe. They didn't have the technology we have. They didn't have the access we have. They didn't have the sex-saturated culture that we currently live in. It's everywhere. It's normal. It is normal for us to watch the news and watch the presidential election stuff and expect media members to grill politicians about what their views are on sexual perversion. That's normal for us, and we're casual about it. You know what Paul tells Timothy? In the end days, wicked men will be deceived. They'll be deceived. So they actually believe what they're saying. And they will go and they will deceive others. And things will go from bad to worse. Things are getting worse, even though there's nothing new under the sun. We live in a time when Christians will go watch movies like Fifty Shades of Grey for entertainment. Christians, professing Christians, and be entertained by that. There's restaurants called Hooters. That's just normal for us. It's because they make really good wings, right? That's why. Every product is being using sex to sell it. My wife and I were at that men's clothing store the other day where they sell suits. And that when you sit down in the, in the uh, store, on the counter is a bunch of women in bikinis. I don't, I don't think I'm going to wear one of those. Why are they using women in bikinis? They use sex to sell every. It doesn't matter if it's an appliance or a car. It doesn't matter what they're selling. Sex is selling. And that's normal. And we're casual about it. 
We expect these things to be true. And so with us knowing that 65% of Americans believe that I've got to at least pause and, and ask the question, is adultery sin? And, and I'll tell you this, adultery is not only as adultery sin, in God's eyes is an especially heinous sin. That's right, not all sin is the same, because it's another myth that we're told continually as a culture. All sin is not equal. Jaywalking and murder are not the same thing. You know that. You just naturally know that. But then we say, well, all sin is sin, so we shouldn't judge any sin. All sin is not the same in God's view either. In fact, when you read through the scriptures, you find there's a special distaste for adultery. When he talks about his love for his people, and then they go and they do other things. It's not always sexual stuff. They go and they find other gods. They make other things ultimate. They make something else supreme in their lives. What he calls it is adultery. Because when we commit adultery, we break the oneness that we have with a spouse. We break the oneness that we have with God. And so it's especially heinous to him. He, see, he describes his people. I was reading this morning um, in Ezekiel chapter 16. If you read the whole thing, he talks about his love, his tender love that he has for his people. And he talks about how they respond, how we respond. And he says this, he says, you adulterous wife, talking about Israel, that's an analogy. You prefer strangers to your own husband. He tells Hosea the prophet, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. Which, oh God would never do something like that. Well, read the book of Hosea. He tells a guy to go do that. I want you to go marry a prostitute and here's why. Because I want you to be an object lesson of the way that I love my people. And when she goes and she prostitutes herself, you buy her back. Because that's what I do. And when she's with another man, you be there to take her back because that's what I do with my people. Adultery is a picture of the spiritual sin that's in each one of our lives, especially heinous sin. And we've gotten to a place as a culture where we're just okay. It's just there. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah talks about this. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, he says, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, he answers the rhetorical question. They have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. We don't even get embarrassed anymore because it's all normal. And then we get told, we shouldn't have any shame. There should be no shame. It's bad for your self-esteem. No, when you're doing shameful things, there sh- you should be ashamed. There shouldn't be any guilt. No, no, sometimes you're really guilty. Now there's false guilt and there's false, I get all that. But when you're guilty, you're guilty. When, when you're doing shameful things, there should, and we've gotten so, we've gotten hardened, we've gotten past that point. And so is adultery sin? Well, the simple answer to that is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. One of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. So yes, it is. What about lust? What is lust? Well, you look at your passage here today, and uh, Jesus defines it, and he talks about looking. You don't actually have to look in order to lust. A blind person can lust. Someone who does gouge their eyes out can still lust, because it is, as we've seen in this passage, a heart issue. But the word looks there is a present participle. It means the continual looking. So let me say this. Some of you have a very overactive conscience. If you see someone you think they're attractive, that is not lust. So if you see a man, you see a woman, a radical response is not, I start wearing a blindfold around everywhere. No, that's not, that's not lust. Lust is a continual look. And then the word for lust, it really just simply means, without context, desire. So you can lust after lots of things. You have desire for a lot of things. In our context, it's a, a sexual context, because the word adultery is used here. And it's a sensual desire. The idea of lust is it's a look with the longing to fulfill a sensual desire, which are legitimate desires, but you're trying to fulfill them in a way that wasn't the way God designed. And so is that a sin? And the simple answer is yes. Now I know not everybody's here at the same place spiritually, and so that's news for some people. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, 
I knew that adultery was a sin, and I knew that people that I knew that were followers of Jesus, I assumed that they were not committing adultery, actually physically sleeping with someone else. But I had no idea that thinking about such things would be a sin. And I don't want to make light of that today, but I want to tell you honestly, candidly, where I was at. The guy who led me to Jesus told me about a relationship with Christ, that all my sins could be forgiven, and I could have a relationship with God met with me, and we would study the Bible together. And I remember the day when he talked to me about this passage and told me that lust was a sin. He started to describe it. And I thought, I do that all the time. In fact, I'm pretty good at that. I would use lust almost as a hobby. In fact, if I would go to a boring class in high school, I trusted Christ when I was a senior in high school, I remember I would think to myself how I was going to lust through the class in order to get through that hour because I don't want to hear about chlorophyll. Like, I don't want to hear about that. That's boring stuff. And so I think these things, and I legitimately, even though I was a professed Christian, thought to myself, but I'm not hurting anyone. And no one else even knows that it's happening. It's just in my mind. And I didn't realize the Bible said in my heart. It's just internal. And so it's not really that big of a deal. But it is. And the very fact that it is in my heart shows what a big deal that it is because all adultery is when you actually act on it is actually more of a symptom of what's a reality inside and what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's going to the heart of the problem and he goes to your heart and so lust the reason why it's a big deal is because it's a breaking off the oneness breaking off communion with God and breaking off a oneness with a spouse or a future spouse for those of you who are single because God had a plan for sex. He patented it, so he gets to say how we use it. He created it. And he talks about it in the very beginning. Do you remember the beginning of the Bible? God created and it was good, and he created and it was good, and he created and it was good, and he created and it was good. And then it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so he's already created, you know, giraffes and animals and hippos and birds and all that kind of stuff. But he hadn't created a woman. So then he creates a woman. Adam wakes up, the understatement of ever, you did a good job, God. Like, she's a lot better than the alligators. That was good. And then God instituted marriage. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, he tells us about it. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. Pause there. Who's he talking about? Adam and Eve? They don't have a mom and dad. What are you talking about? This wasn't just for Adam and Eve. He was instituting a timeless principle here. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. So it's one man with one woman. And they will become one flesh. That's a euphemism for the sexual union. Now, sometimes you hear couples say, oh, I just want to, we're just testing the water. I just want to see, let me tell you something, your body's fit. God made it that way. What actually is happening in that union is you're symbolizing, you're showing the commitment, the covenant relationship here and the oneness. And that was God's design. That was God's plan for it. And every time we commit adultery, we break that oneness and we break fellowship with God. It is serious. Even when it happens in our hearts, because that person you're lusting after, that's someone else's son, daughter, future spouse or current spouse. It's, it's sin in your heart. A lot of times we think, well, because it's in our heart, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, I remember meeting one time with a, a guy here in town. He was a leader at a church. To praise God, that church shut down. Um, I'm fine with people that are preaching the gospel. And they do different styles and different methods. But they weren't even preaching the gospel. It was a liberal church. And I was having lunch with this guy, and we were talking about sexual sin. And he said, well, we don't talk about that at our church. Uh, we let everybody figure that out. We believe that Jesus doesn't care about who's in your bed. He just cares about who's in, what's in your heart, which sounds really spiritual. I told you before, half-truth. You know, he does care about what's in your heart. Let me tell you two problems with the statement that guy said. First problem is this. It implies that you can have faith that doesn't intersect with the rest of your life. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of faith. 
And some people have the idea that, uh, well, as long as I trusted Jesus and everything else I do is fine, that is not, that's the kind of faith that demons have. They believe in God, but it's not a genuine faith. A genuine faith intersects in every way with everything in your life. And so that what you see is an active faith taught throughout the New Testament, and that means you do works. There is actual deeds that come. The faith is the beginning, but they're not saying you do these works to get saved, but when you trust Christ as your Savior, you then have faith, and then it intersects with your finances, it intersects with your work life, intersects with how you use your talents, intersects with your sex life. That's the first problem, is you've got a faith that's isolated. Well, I believe in Jesus, I pray all the time, but it doesn't impact that. This is separate. That's not even possible. And if you have that kind of faith, I would challenge you to consider whether or not you genuinely have faith. The second problem is this verse actually speaks directly to what he said. Jesus doesn't care who's in my bed. He just cares who's in, what's in my heart. Well, what's in your heart is directly affected by who's in your bed. <laughs> this is sin in your heart. And Jesus cares intimately about your heart. In fact, he cares more about your heart than about your worship practices. In Matthew chapter 15, he talks about this. He's confronting people who are doing all the right stuff and even extra rules that they've made up in addition to the stuff the scripture says, and, but their hearts are far from God. And, G, and Jesus, red letter, says this, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You worship me, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And then he goes on to describe their worship. They worship me and it's meaningless. It's empty. It is vain. Their teachings they, who cares? Their life doesn't back it up. They're just rules taught by men. And then a couple of verses later, that's verses 7 through 9 in Matthew 15, if you want to go there and study it yourself. In verses 19 and 20, he starts to talk about all the actions we do, they actually come from our hearts. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. So he lists them right there. Theft, false testimony, slander. He continues to go on, verse 20. So yes, this is a sin in the heart. But let me challenge you with something. Not my thinking when I first became a Christian of, well, then it doesn't hurt anyone else, which you could argue that's not true. But we're talking about your heart here. This is, to quote Donald Trump, huge. This is huge. This sin in your heart, this is huge. This is a big deal. Let me tell you implications of this. And um, I'm going to talk to those of you who struggle with sexual sin in a moment. But let me pause and just be as pastoral as I can be. For some of you women, I know there are women here whose husbands uh, look at pornography regularly, and maybe you know, maybe you don't, but those of you who do, um, I want to speak to you because in interacting with this, oftentimes uh, the woman makes it about themselves. You, you think that this has something to do with you, and let me tell you what this teaches us. It doesn't have anything to do with you. And, it doesn't, and men, it doesn't have anything to do with the, like training your eyes to look different and different tactics either. This is a heart issue. Until you do it with a heart issue, this isn't going to be dealt with. And so women, if you think, um, and this is me just trying to be as... Um, tender as I can be to you in this. If you think that you can um, perform better or become prettier or something and fix this problem, you cannot. It is not about you. So you don't need to feel bad. Uh, one, if he's doing it, uh, you need to pray like crazy because the only way this happens is he needs a new heart. And so the heart of stone needs to be removed and a new heart needs to be put in. And then when that new heart's put in, it doesn't mean the battle's over with, but you're fighting. And so that's the idea is that this is a fight. And so guys, I'll tell you, the fact that this is a heart issue, if you're not fighting, indicates you might not have faith. If you are fighting, doesn't mean you're always victorious, but if you're fighting, it shows that you have faith at least. This is a heart issue and the implications are huge. And so we live in this sex-saturated culture. Don't need to quote a bunch of stats. We've done that before, but it's all over the place. It's normal. We're casual about it, but Jesus says the standards are super high. Hell is what he talks about. Verses 29 and 30. If you're right, I cause you to sin. Take radical response, gouge it out, throw it away. Because it's better for you to do the short-term sacrifice here than to have the long-term problem of hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. You've got to realize the consequences. You've got to realize what's at stake. I was talking to a friend of mine who's been here to this church um, and shared his testimony before, Tal Prince, uh, 24-year sex addiction, has been walking in freedom for years since. He does a lot of counseling with people that are dealing with addictions now. We were talking this week some about some of the circumstances and things that he's seen people do that have come out of these different addictions, but he said, you've got to get people thinking about the consequences in the midst of it. And so we started talking about, hey, what, what are you going to do? So you've got this craving. You want, this, you want to do this, this lustful thing. And so then you start thinking about it. You dwell on it. And then you do something about it. Then what? And then what? And then what? And then what? And you start asking yourself the question. It could cost you your family. It could cost you your reputation. Could, and we can go through all that stuff. But Jesus gives us here hell. Here's the problem with me sharing that with you. There's a bunch of people go, well, I'm a Christian, so that's not the thing. I read one pastor this week. And he wrote a book called Future Grace. You can look it up. It talks about battling lust in there, amongst many other things. And he tells about when he read this passage a couple times, talking about lust. One time he was teaching at a high school and given uh, ten battles against lust, and he read this verse, and then had a young man come up to him and say, are you saying that I could lose my salvation? And there was another time he was sitting in his office. He was talking to a man who was in an adulterous relationship, cheating on his wife. And he said, I sat there, I tried to listen with all the compassion I could, and I tried to understand his circumstances um, but he's unwilling to change. And finally I read in this passage and said, listen, if you're not willing to fight this sin, you're on your way to hell. And the guy looked at him like he was crazy and said, are you saying I can lose my salvation? And we've got this false concept sometimes of our salvation that if we did some prayer, if we did said something, then, then we must be, and then everything else is separate. Like our faith doesn't intersect. And, and the problem is that if that's if you're saying this, you know what? You continue to read the Sermon on the Mount. You know what ends up happening is that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, there's a broad road and many are on it. They don't even realize it. So if you do a survey of American culture and ask them, how many of you are Christians? It's like 70 some percent. But 65% certainly aren't fighting this sin because they don't even think it is a sin. Do you know what they're professing? That they're on the broad road that leads to destruction. If what Jesus says here is true. And you can say, well, it's extreme, it's hyperbole, and there's a bunch of reasons why you might explain it away. Here's what you can explain away. This, you might have a theology that you try and put over top of the scriptures, you might have thoughts about that, but you cannot explain away. This is repeatedly the warning that's given throughout the New Testament. If you're involved, actively involved in sexual sin, that's an indication that you are on your way to hell. Jesus says it, so what if it's true? What if the real warning is that? What if 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 is not just for us to beat up on homosexuals, but we're supposed to see ourselves in here? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's that warning again. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or slanders, or swindlers inherit the kingdom of God. We oftentimes go to Galatians chapter 5. We talk about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Right before that, Paul lists the fruit of the flesh which describes a lot more of our culture than the other part. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. This is obvious. Like, you shouldn't even have to state it, right? No, it's not obvious anymore. Impurity and debauchery, which includes pornography. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. So it's not just sexual either. Fits of rage, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. We give awards for that. Dissensions, factions. He continues to go on. Envy, drunkenness, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what if... We're wrong and the New Testament's right. Then the consequences are huge. 
And see, your sin is serious. It's so serious that the only solution for it was the blood of Jesus Christ. Think about the guy who's preaching this passage in Matthew chapter 5. He's preaching here in Matthew chapter 5. Do you know what happened in Matthew chapter 4? In Matthew chapter 4, if you jump back one chapter, those of you who have your Bibles, is where Jesus was tempted. After 40 days of fasting, what ends up happening, the first temptation that we see, is that he's tempted to fulfill a legitimate desire, hunger. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Hunger in an illegitimate way. Everyone has sexual desires. What's the temptation? Illegitimate fulfillment. And then there's other temptations. The other temptations are, go, be the king. That's your rightful position. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You just left heaven and came here, but without the cross, without God's plan, you know a better plan. There's another way. God's lying to you. Same temptation that happened back in the garden. He's tempted in every way just as we're tempted, but doesn't sin. None of us have fought to the point of shedding blood yet. Jesus did. In the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way. Sweating, drops of blood. And then obviously his blood shed on the cross for you. For the wages of our sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. That's the gift that God offers you. I don't come to bring you words of condemnation today, but you must realize the seriousness of your sin to truly understand the attractiveness of the cross of Christ. Jesus is not something you just add to your life. There is no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There is no guilt because they've experienced real forgiveness. And then there's a battle and there's a fight. And there are moments where you feel guilty and you should because you've sinned against God. You've, you've put his nails in his hands. You've nailed him to the cross. But he offers forgiveness continually. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your mouth, if, with your, if you confess, he's faithful. It's his faithfulness. He is just. He is just. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you. So he can restore virginity. He can make your heart pure. He can give you a hunger for righteousness. Which is what he tells us is the key to happiness at the beginning. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. He can make you that way. Only through the blood of Christ. Sin is serious. And so he wants us to take it serious as his followers. And that's why he gives us these statements here. If your right eye causes you to sin. Verse 29. Gouge it out. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There are people that have taken this literally throughout church history. Probably the most well-known is Origen, a brilliant guy, one of our church fathers in the third century. And uh, he read this verse, knew his own personal struggles with sexual sin, and had himself castrated. Then found out that didn't work. Bad news for him, huh? The Council of Nicaea then later said that that is... um, not a legitimate way to deal with this passage. They outlawed it. And since then, we oftentimes, when we teach this passage, say this is hyperbole. Jesus obviously didn't mean for you to do these things. And what I fear happens when we do that is that we then say, well, it doesn't really apply. It doesn't really count. So just for a moment, it is hyperbole, and I'll talk about that in a second. But what if it wasn't? Would you do it? If that was your sin, would you gouge your eye out? Would you cut your hand off? Well, we know it's hyperbole. The question is, would you do it? The reason why we know it's hyperbole is because it doesn't even make sense. Jesus just said the problem's a heart problem, so God, your eye out. Who would do that? If I knew I had a heart problem, I went to a doctor, and the doctor said, we're going to operate on your hand next week. <laughs> why? I'm not a doctor, but that uns- I think I'm getting a second opinion before you cut my eye out to try and fix my heart. Jesus said, this is a heart issue. What he's saying is you need to take whatever extreme measures are necessary in order to not sin any longer. And so the key here is not about your eye and your hand. As much as if your right hand, if your right eye causes you to sin, causes you to sin, gouge it out, makes you stumble. What is the thing in your life that's tempting you? And so you've got a shopping issue. Stop watching the shopping channel. Cut up your credit cards. 
you got a food issue. Probably shouldn't be going to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Other people can go. Not sin for them. For you, shouldn't be there. Some of you have sexual issue. Some can't go to certain places. Can't do things other people can do. Why? You're going to take extreme measures. I told you I was talking to Tal the other day. Let me tell you real applications of this. They look like this. Um, for him, he's 24 years sexual addiction. You know what he does? He does a polygraph once a quarter. Because he knows he can't be there. He said, I counsel with people that are on heroin. I counsel with people that are on cocaine and drugs. I can test them to see if they smoke pot. He said, I can't test someone to see that has a sexual addiction to see if they're committing adultery. They just lie. And he knows that you can get good enough at lying that you can suppress it and hide. He doesn't want to hide anymore, so he voluntarily does a polygraph test. That's, that's cutting your hand off. That's gouging your That's I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Told me stories about people that he's counseled with. He said, I have permission to share. One company executive, CEO. Quits the job, hundreds of thousands of dollars, because he can't be in the environment anymore. Can't handle the pressure. He's driving him to the, the sin. Another guy as a surgeon, a teaching surgeon, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and left that job and to go do a residential treatment for sexual addiction. Spent somewhere between forty-five thousand, sixty thousand dollars to do that, and was gone for sixty days, and then took a job at Chick-fil-A. That's cutting your hand off. Gouging around. One guy was a um, oil, he worked on the oil rigs in Calgary. In Calgary, the oil industry is a big deal. And what they oftentimes do is you go work for three months and then you come in your home for three months. Three months while you're out there, you're with a whole bunch of guys. The company actually gives pornography, looks the other way with it, kind of a fringe benefit, and just figures you're bored out there and got to give these guys something to do. And the guy realized, I can't be in this environment any longer. Walked away from a 25 year job with no plan. That's a radical response to sin. But what we do is we often treat sin casually. We don't think it's that big of a deal. And maybe we can blame some of that on our culture, but certainly you can't now, not today. We know. And so we don't, we don't deal with it. We let it grow. And we think, well, maybe next weekend this, things will change and I'll pray about it. And, and we don't do anything. He's calling us to action here. What would you do if you were in a survival situation? You'd fight to survive, but you won't fight against this. And so what many of us do, I thought about it this week. It's kind of like um, this summer at our house, we put a pool out in the backyard. You know, it's like a bazillion degrees outside. This week was like the fall, but this, before that, it was like crazy hot outside the summer. So we put a little kiddie pool on our back deck for the kids to play on. And every time we do this, I don't, I'm not good at cleaning it. And then stuff, so stuff starts to grow in it. And eventually they stop playing in it. And then I just got, they're, no, they're not playing in it, so they're not going to get sick. So it's fine. I just left the kiddie pool there. Things continue to grow. One morning we wake up and it sounds like we have a frog in our fireplace. Like it sounds like the frog is in the living room. It's out on the deck in the backyard. There's a bunch of frogs out there. So they're in this pool. Get the frogs out of the pool. A couple days later, still didn't tear the thing down. There are tadpoles swimming around. So whatever, they're reproducing out on our back deck. God designed all that, whatever. And uh, I go to tear the pool down, and they take all these tadpoles. Our girls, they're so compassionate, they're so kind. They take all the tadpoles, they put them in a little plastic container. They start feeding these tadpoles. They start coming out. They're basically Elmira, like smothering these tadpoles. But one of our daughters, the way she's wired, she's like wanting to take pictures of them and do a science project and see their development and all that stuff. And so all of them got their own thing that's going on. But they're feeding, they're nurturing, they're watching them grow. Then Saturday, to contrast that, I get a text message from J.D. Hensterlings, one of the elders at our church. And he's found something out in his backyard. It was a copperhead snake. <laughs> Highly poisonous. He killed it immediately. He sent it to me. I told a story one time to our church about me killing a snake. Then a bunch of you told me, you shouldn't have killed that snake. It's a good snake. There's no such thing as good snakes. But you told me that it was a good snake because it wasn't poisonous. His snake was poisonous. He killed it. He chopped its head off. He told me when he chopped its head off, even after he chopped its head off, it just kept, <laughs> there's no neck, just kept biting and hissing as it was dying. It was deadly. Now, what's the difference between what JD did and what I did? And why would he do that other than the fact that I'm nice and he's mean. What would be the other reason why would he do that? He's a great guy. But 
Because what we had in our backyard, we were convinced was not dangerous. And he was convinced his was. So he killed it immediately. The problem is that many of us treat our sin like my daughter treats the tadpoles. We'll feed it. We'll nurture it. We'll just let it be around. And it keeps growing. And we don't realize how deadly it is. And we should be treating it like JD treated the snake in his backyard. You find it, you kill it. You're battling. You're always battling sin. And it's not on to you. It's the power of the Holy. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in your life if you're a believer in Jesus. You naturally fight the things that nailed him to the cross when they come into your life. And so what does that mean for you? Well, each of you is going to be different. For some of you, I mean, we live in a time. I've, I'll tell you firsthand, we live in a time where I've actually had uh, couples that are living together tell me with a straight face, we do it for financial reasons. That's how casual we are about sexual sin in our, in our time. Some of you need to move out. That's your response to today's message. That's the application. Some of you are in a relationship right now, and that person might or might not be here, but you know it's not the way that God intended for it to be. You need to repent of that sin. You need to talk to each other about this. And if, you, if someone's not willing to talk, someone in that relationship either doesn't care about Jesus or doesn't care about you. And I tell you these words, and I know I'm not... I love you. That's why I tell you this. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I don't care if we're friends. But I don't want you going to hell. That's what's warned in this passage here. And I, I believe Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus over our culture on that. And so if he's warning this. What if he really means that? So that's what's at stake. I don't want anyone going to hell. And here's how you don't go to hell. You trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you're fighting against these sins. It's a continual battle. Even Paul, the guy who writes a bunch of the New Testament, says he's in a battle. So it's not just when you trust Christ and the battle goes away. No, there's still a battle. Romans chapter 7, you can read about it. Romans chapter 8, he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I don't say this to make you feel terrible, but I want to wake us up to what's happening in our culture. We are living in the last days, and it's getting worse, and it will continue to get worse until Jesus comes back. And what are you going to do? You've got to do something. Some of you have real guilt. Let me quote R.C. Sproul here. I think we have this on the slides. The only solution to real guilt is real forgiveness. The necessary condition for real forgiveness is real repentance. And that's what we need. Some of you, your radical response to sin today is to repent. Some of you, your radical response to sin today is to confess. First John 1.9, I quoted it earlier. We'll put it up on the screen. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. For some of you, your radical response today is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Ask him to be your savior. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We were his enemies. We were fighting against him. We were adulterous people. We were sinful people. We were lustful people, all of us. And while we were that, he died for us. He loved us so much. It wasn't because of our attractiveness. It wasn't because we brought to the table. Because he loved us. So while we were his enemies, he died for us. And Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 say, it's not enough that he just died for us. We've got to place our faith in him. If we believe in our hearts that he died for us. And we confess with our mouths that he is Lord then there's a promise in scripture that you will be saved. Some of you need to be saved today. Some of you need healing today. The same blood that can bring cleansing can bring healing. And some of you, your greatest pain in your life is because of someone else's sexual sin. I understand that. And I'm sorry. But Jesus can handle that. And what needs to happen for some of us here today is not that we just feel so bad about our sin. It's that we long for Jesus. Let me, tell you, let me tell you why I don't look at pornography God, by God's grace today. It's not because uh, my wife is so awesome. It's not because the consequences are so bad. It's because Jesus is so good. 
And when you see how beautiful he is and you see how valuable he is, you want that. Now, it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but I'm telling you, some of you need to get to that place where you realize how, how real it is, the love of Jesus for you. Some of you have burdens today. Some of you need to trust Christ today. Some of you might need to be baptized. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond today in a way we don't do every week. You want to come forward. Oh, that's like supernatural courage. If we talk about a topic like this and ask you to come forward, I understand that. Some of you might be coming forward because of what we talked about today. Some of you for other reasons. I know that. But I'm going to ask if you're a pastor here today, or you're an elder, you're one of our leaders, or some women that I know lead, are in some small groups and leaders of small groups, you can come forward and be down here. For anybody that wants to come, give a burden, wants to be baptized, they'll tell you their story. Uh, they want, you want to trust Christ, you come forward today. And so we're going to sing Amazing Grace. Because God's grace is amazing. I'm just going to ask you all to stand right now. Some of you may need to pray in your seat. You, can, you have the freedom to remain seated, but in, in general, we'll just stand and we're going to sing this song. If you want to respond to Jesus today, trusting Jesus as your Savior, dealing with sin, casting a burden, you just want somebody to pray for you, you come down here. We don't need to know all the details. Uh, just so you know, just instruction to some of you that are pastors, elders that will come down here. Um, you don't have to know every detail that the person comes forward for, but just ask them what it is that's happening, and, and I know that you know how to lead someone to Jesus. I'll be down here. If you maybe you don't feel comfortable with some of the other folks, you don't know them, I'll be here uh, if you want to talk. And then after the service, we're going to be baptized on some folks.